0: Chief Justice, may it please
1: the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Amy, we have nine. Ah! (laughs) Yes. That that was my happy (laughs) scream.
0: Justice Amy Coney Barrett, to whom we send our sincerest congratulations, was confirmed by the Senate Monday night and later that night at an outdoor, socially distanced White House ceremony, Justice Clarence Thomas administered the constitutional oath of office.
1: Shout out to our listener, Daniel Nord, who emailed us the question we were all thinking anyway, which was, why did Justice Thomas do the swearing in at the White House instead of the chief? Who decides on that? How did this happen? What does it mean? Well, the answer is slightly more involved than you might think. Incoming Supremes take two oaths of office, both of which have their own traditions. The first oath is the constitutional oath uh, that goes something like, I will support and defend the constitution, etc." You've probably heard this one in other contexts because it's the one that all government employees take. So this was the oath that Justice Thomas administered to now Justice Barrett on Monday night.
0: There's another oath called the Judicial Oath, which you might not have heard, and it goes, I, very important person, do solemnly swear that I will administer justice with respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich, and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me as under the Constitution and the laws of the United States, so help me God. That uh, is the judicial oath and was separately administered the next morning by the chief at the court.
1: The modern practice is generally to take the constitutional oath at the White House and the judicial oath at the court administered by the chief justice during an official investiture ceremony. But there is no required way to do it. The traditions surrounding these oaths have evolved over time. But the practice of doing the constitutional oath at the White House started in 1940 when FDR invited Justice Frank Murphy to take his oath there. Now, with respect to Justice Thomas administering the oath to Barrett and Kennedy, if you recall, administering the oath to Gorsuch, that is apparently done at the request of the incoming justice.
0: Talking about Justice Clarence Thomas, we saw an interesting Wall Street Journal article about him. James Toronto wrote, that President Trump might be getting something of a twofer with his appointment of Justice Barrett. He might also be getting a de facto Chief Justice Thomas sometimes. So this has to do with the way that the court assigns majority opinions. That is, the most senior justice in the majority gets to assign it. If a case splits five to four with the chief joining the three liberals in dissent, Justice Thomas would get to assign the majority opinion. My prediction, however, is that this isn't going to happen very often. In tightly split, high-profile cases, the chief, ever the pragmatist, is likely to join the majority so that he can assign cases to himself and write as narrow an opinion as the five other members of his majority will permit. But I still expect to see pundits in the next coming years note a sudden and dramatic rightward shift from the chief justice.
1: Yeah, Giancarlo, I tend to agree with that. I, I think there have already been some indications or at least some hypotheses that that's what the chief has already been doing in some of these more high profile cases, uh, you know, joining with one side or the other in order to, to flesh out the majority and be in charge of that. So uh, that's that wouldn't be shocking to me at all, either.
0: Moving into orders this week, the court had several more emergency election related cases.
1: One of the ones we saw coming out on Monday night, right before uh, Justice Barrett's swearing in, was an election case out of Wisconsin. On Monday night, a 5-3 majority of the Supreme Court declined to vacate a Seventh Circuit stay of a district court order that would have extended the state's deadline for receiving absentee ballots from November 3rd, Election Day, to November 9th, as long as the ballots were postmarked on or before Election Day. We had three concurring opinions and one dissent in this case. The chief wrote a short concurrence explaining why he voted to intervene here, but not in other election cases over the past two weeks. He reasoned that those cases involved the authority of state courts to apply their own constitutions to election regulations, while this case involved federal intrusion into the state lawmaking process. Justice Gorsuch also concurred, writing that even though COVID certainly poses serious challenges to conducting a national election, individual judges still may not improvise with their own election rules in place of those adopted by state legislatures. Finally, Kavanaugh wrote a lengthier concurrence, explaining his three alternative and independent reasons for concluding that the lower court injunction was unwarranted. So first, the injunction changed state election rules too close to an election. When the rules of the road should be clear and settled, Uh, Second and third, federal courts have limited roles in determining how best to conduct elections during pandemics. That instead falls to politically accountable state legislatures. And also the court has long recognized that reasonable voting deadlines don't raise federal constitutional issues. Finally, we had a dissent authored by Justice Kagan and joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, They argued that the injunction was reasonable because otherwise, in their view, tens of thousands of Wisconsinites must choose between putting their health at risk and going to the polls in person or risking that through no fault of their own, their ballots will be returned too late to be counted.
0: We had two more cases, one coming out of Pennsylvania. This one may be familiar to you as it's the second time that the court has dealt with it. The first time it refused to stay a decision from the state Supreme Court that extended the mail-in ballot deadline. This time, it refused to expedite its review of the case. The court split four to three. Barrett didn't participate because she didn't have time to get up to speed. Uh, And Justice Alito, joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, dissented. As is typical in this context, there's no majority opinion. But Alito, in his dissent, argued that, and I quote, it would be highly desirable to issue a ruling on the constitutionality of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision before the election. That question, he said, has national importance, and there is a strong likelihood that the ruling violates the Constitution. He conceded, however, that it's simply not enough time to decide the question before the election. Uh, Then another case out of North Carolina was very similar. The second case involved a challenge to another judicially mandated extension to the mail-in ballot deadline in that state. Again, no majority opinion, and Barrett didn't participate for the same reason. In this case, Justice Gorsuch dissented, joined by Justices Thomas and Alito, and argued that the state court had, in effect, usurped the legislature's power to set election deadlines, which could, and I quote, invite confusion, risk-altering election outcomes, and in the process, threaten voter confidence in the results.
1: I'd also point out that uh, Justice Barrett did not participate clearly in the Monday night decision as that came before her swearing-in ceremony.
0: This week, we don't have a new interview for you. Instead, we've picked a very fitting interview from the past. Last season, our friends and former colleagues, Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates, got the opportunity to interview Amy Coney Barrett while she was still Judge Barrett. So we're going to play that interview again since she's now on the court.
1: But before we do that, I'd like to take a few minutes and really explain what this week has meant to me as a conservative woman in the legal field. When I think back to my time in undergrad, in law school, as a baby attorney, my legal heroes were always men. Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas, Justice Harlan. And that never really bothered me. It also never really struck me as odd. The most important thing to me was always that I saw my personal legal philosophy reflected at the highest levels. But if I'm also entirely honest, There was always a part of me that, as a woman with a conservative, originalist legal philosophy, always felt like a little bit of a black sheep. I can count on one hand the number of women I knew in law school, and even after law school, who thought about the law like me. And there certainly wasn't some originalist, Ruth Bader Ginsburg-esque female icon for me to look up to and admire in the same way as, say, a Justice Scalia. Yes, there was Sandra Day O'Connor, But let's be honest, O'Connor was hardly the staunchest of originalists, even if she may have appeared as a female Scalia in comparison to the far more progressive Ginsburg. And please don't misunderstand me. I adored Justice Ginsburg for many reasons. But at the same time, there was always in the background a serious discomfort with considering her as a personal legal hero. Yes, she was the notorious RBG, but her legal views rarely reflected my own, even if her success on the highest judicial stage was certainly a victory for me as a woman. Enter Amy Coney Barrett. When she appeared in the national spotlight during her 2017 confirmation hearings, it was my first introduction to a reality where women in the heights of the federal judiciary might truly reflect me that they might think about the law in the same way that I do. Well, this week, Judge Barrett became Justice Barrett. I watched a mother of seven give the nation a free legal clinic in originalism before the United States Senate. And there is a part of me that will never have words for what that meant. For the first time in my life, it felt like there was a seat at the table for originalist women that there was a seat at the table for me. Perhaps just as importantly, the mere existence of a Justice Barrett shatters cultural stereotypes that so often burden conservative women. Originalism is not some dying fringe philosophy of old white men. Originalists don't need Y chromosomes. And I hope that Justice Barrett is just the beginning of America's introduction to a resurgent, lively, and diverse originalism. There are women originalists. There are African American originalists. There are Asian American and Hispanic American originalists. There are LGBT originalists. There are Protestant and Catholic and Muslim and Jewish and atheist originalists. There are originalists who vote for Democrats and originalists who vote for Republicans. And not just in this broad sense that we are all somehow originalists now, but in a very real and concrete sense, there are brilliant legal minds of every race, religion, gender, and sexuality who understand that the role of a judge is not to legislate from the bench who understand that statutes and constitutions are not the playthings of the judiciary to be arbitrarily altered, updated, or modified based on personal whims or preferences. So yes, this is a great moment for America and a great moment for originalism. I suspect there will be many more great moments in the future for other originalists of whatever demographic who have long felt the same disconnect as I. But for conservative women, this week was particularly and uniquely glorious. Never again will a budding originalist woman in law school look in vain to find a feminine hero who truly reflects her ideals. Never again will we feel alone in the grand scheme of legal history. Never again will we question whether we are black sheep who must shove ourselves into some progressive mold in order to succeed in the legal world. Injustice, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, we finally have a justice of our own. And with that, let us return to Amy Coney Barrett in her own words as we replay for you Elizabeth Slattery's interview of then Judge Barrett from earlier this year. We're delighted to have
2: Amy Coney Barrett in the studio with us today. Judge Barrett is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So let's start off with your early career. Following law school, you clerked for Judge Silberman on the D.C. Circuit. So what were some of the highlights
3: of that clerkship? Oh, it was a great job, and I learned so much from Judge Silberman. You know, That was my first job out of law school, so I started in July after having graduated in May, so I was definitely pretty green. And clerking for a formidable judge, who was as smart um, as Judge Silberman really taught me a lot. I think um, I've always been tough. Judge Silberman definitely made me tougher. I mean, you, you know, here you are, a brand new baby lawyer, and you're having to go back and forth about cases with someone who's very experienced. Um, he is formidable. He really can grasp issues in cases very clearly and write clearly and quickly. I mean, he can get his reasoning to paper. Um, so, you know, that, that was just a great experience. And I have to say, you know, he spent time as the Undersecretary of Labor earlier in his career, and the labor cafeteria is close to the D.C. Circuit, <laughs> so you know he he really taught me the importance of being a mentor, and some of that happened through the many lunches he liked to take us. Two at the labor cafeteria, where I would not call the food a highlight, but the conversation (laughs) was. um, He also liked the old AB pizza, and that was uh, a lot more um, fun from the menu side of things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Judge Silberman, he sat behind me at my confirmation hearing, and he swore me in at my investiture ceremony. So, you know, he's been a very important um, mentor in my life.
4: And then you went on to clerk at the Supreme Court for Justice Scalia. So can you tell us a little about your time in his chambers?
3: Yes. So, you know, that is trial by fire. You get thrown in and, you know, it's an overwhelming amount of work. You know, you're feeling your way at first. Justice Scalia participated in the cert pool. So you start in the summer and you're thrown into writing memos that you know will be circulated at the time eight of the nine justices were in the cert pool. So it's a little stressful when you you realize you're writing things that eight Supreme Court justices are going to be reading. And then when the merits cases started in October, you know, those are the hardest cases. They're there because they're hard enough that they've divided lower courts. So those were very challenging. And the way Justice Scalia ran his chambers is we all had to be prepared to discuss all the cases. We would have a conference before argument where the four of us would be in his office, and then you're just going toe-to-toe, everybody saying what they think. Um, and, you know, Justice Scalia, obviously, you know, very quick-witted, brilliant, and, you know, you, you had to be—he didn't want you to agree with him. He wanted you to say what you thought. And so disagreeing with him, as I sometimes did, and, and pushing back and going back and forth with someone like Justice Scalia really taught me a lot, taught me a lot about— Oral advocacy and being articulate and who better to learn um, how to write uh, under than someone who was as great a writer as he was. So it was a great year. And I should say I would be remiss if I didn't say that in both years. Another highlight was the great co-clerks that I had.
4: Before we move on, how did the SCOTUS cafeteria compare to the labor department's? Better, but I mean,
3: it's not a place I'd choose for a date night.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, Tiffany and I have plans to go over and check out the the new uh, menu item, which is pizza at the Supreme Court cafeteria at
3: some point. Yes, and I, and I haven't been there since the newer justices have made improvements, so. <laughs> uh,
2: so then after your clerkships, you worked at a big firm for a few years and then spent the next 15 or so years teaching at Notre Dame Law School, mm-hmm. uh, where you are still teaching. Uh, so what are some of your favorite classes to teach?
3: So I taught a lot of classes. You know, I, I've been a professor for a long time, so I've taught civil procedure and federal courts and constitutional law seminar in statutory interpretation, one in constitutional theory, and I teach evidence. And I really love teaching all of them for different reasons. Um, my scholarship focused primarily on public law. So teaching federal courts and constitutional law and my seminars in interpretation, those were you know my primary areas of scholarly interest and they're easy to get students engaged in. Those are the kinds of subjects that students are really eager to engage with. So I loved teaching those classes. Um, You know, I love teaching civil procedure too. That is a different challenge. Um, First year, first semester students don't always understand why civil procedure is so important when it seems so boring. Um, Some of my, you know, my evaluations, my teaching evaluations at the end of civil procedure, you know, would say things like, Wow, I'm so impressed you could make such a boring subject so interesting, <laughs> which I counted as a triumph. Um, but it's really fun to teach first semester first year students and be one of their introductions to law school. And, you know, civil procedure is something that's the day in, you know, day out bread of a litigator. As you know, Tiffany, now you're at a law firm. I'm sure you're seeing that um, evidence. I like teaching, but that was a surprise. I offered to teach evidence because we needed it. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody was teaching it at the time, so I did it to help out. And it's totally different than the other classes that I teach. And it was a lot of fun because I could use film clips and problems and I would have the students argue motions in class. So, you know, I I continue to teach. I teach my two seminars and it's not practical because of my sitting schedule in Chicago to teach, have class on more than one day in a week. So I can't teach any of the Mm -hmm. big classes anymore, but I, I miss it. I love the big classes as well as the seminars.
4: That's great. And you've lived in South Bend, Indiana, for a number of years now. What are some of your favorite spots around town?
3: Well, Notre Dame obviously looms large (laughs) in South Bend, and we just live three blocks from campus. So in the summer, that's where I go running. I go running on campus, and there are two really beautiful lakes on campus that I go running around. And in the football season, our football Mm -hmm. Saturdays are spent tailgating. We walk up, and we, with um, some friends of ours— for many years, we had a um, antique, vintage fire truck that we painted green, and we would have <laughs> tailgates where all the kids could be running around playing football out on the green. Um, so we, at one point, considered moving to a neighborhood a little farther from campus, and our kids really rebelled because they love the proximity to campus too. Um, one thing about South Bend that people might not know. Um, who haven't been there before, is that it's actually very close to Michigan. And so Lake Michigan and the Michigan beach towns are just a little more than a half an hour away. So my family and I like going up in the summer to the beaches or, you know, there are fun restaurants in the little beach towns. One of the jokes around Notre Dame is that if Father Soren, who was the founder of the university, had just kept traveling a little farther north, the geography (laughs) would have been better.
4: (laughs) As, As a Michigander, I can confirm that. So uh, your
2: husband is also a lawyer, no slouch. Uh, He's a a former assistant U.S. attorney, and now he's at a firm, and he also teaches at Notre Dame. So can you tell me how have you and your husband balanced raising seven children with your very busy careers?
3: Well, part of the reason is my very wonderful husband. I mean, we are totally a team, and we share the responsibility. We divide up doctor's appointments and orthodontist appointments and dentist appointments. You know, there's obviously a lot to do, but in no sense do I— Bear the lion's share of it. So him, um, his being so willing to help has really made it all possible. And you know, sometimes when people hear that we have seven kids, they imagine seven infants. <laughs> but you know, obviously there is, thank goodness, an age spread. Our oldest is in college, and our youngest is in second grade. So we have a range, and and we got another driver in the house on Saturday. We were without a driver for a while when our oldest daughter left home. And I can tell you it is a cause for celebration in a busy family when you have Mm -hmm. someone else who can help drive kids to school. So, you know, South Bend, we have many, many friends. It's a very warm community and a great place to raise a family. So we have carpooling help. I mean, it's true. My my husband once described my Google Calendar as like a cubist painting because it has so many different colors and blocks on it. His looks like that, too. So it's definitely busy. Um, but, you know, we've been fortunate to have good child care and good friends.
2: That's wonderful. I, I have uh, two kids, and my, my Google calendar is starting to take on
4: many, <laughs> many different colors as well. <laughs> so now that you're a judge on the Seventh Circuit, how has the transition been um, from the academic world to the bench?
3: Well, in some ways, the academic world is good preparation for what I do now, because academics spend a lot of their time reading and writing. And that's the way that I spend the bulk of my days now is reading and researching and writing. You know, and as an academic, I spent a lot of time mentoring students. And now I have a smaller group, you know, I have my four law clerks. Um, So in many respects, there are things that are the same. But obviously, you know, there, there's a big difference between writing law review articles and writing judicial opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a law professor, I sometimes wondered whether anyone read or cared about any of the articles that I published in law reviews. But when I write a judicial opinion, I know that there are at least two people, you know, the litigants, who will care very much what I write. And I'm keenly aware that um, I'm exercising the judicial power of the United States, and it's, it's a heavy responsibility, and that's quite different. Being a public servant is quite different you know, than, than being a private citizen, um, even engaged in the service of, of teaching students. So I think the responsibility is, is very different, and that was a very big transition. So shifting gears
2: a bit, uh, your faith has been a subject of quite a bit of scrutiny. It came up during your confirmation hearing, and you said that a judge may never subvert the law or twist it in any way to match the judge's convictions. I think you sort of became a meme with the the dogma lives loudly. So could you talk a little bit about how judges handle any conflicts between their faith and what the job requires?
3: Well, the statement that you just quoted from my confirmation hearing is what I believe, and it's my been my consistent position ever since I was a law student when I wrote with my um, professor, the law review article that got so much scrutiny during my confirmation process. Um, I don't think that faith should influence the way a judge decides cases at all. You know, as I said, I don't think that, A judge should twist the law to bring it into line or to help it match in any way the judge's own convictions. And that's true whether they derive from faith or, you know, everyone has convictions. Everyone has beliefs. That's not unique to people who have faith. Um, And so somehow people seem to have think that I said the opposite of what (laughs) I said. Um, But I, I think that one of the most important responsibilities of a judge is to put their personal preferences and their personal beliefs aside because our responsibility is to adhere to the rule of law.
4: So switching gears again, are there anything you'd like to do with your, your clerks? I've heard some chambers have you know a pancake eating contest or ping pong matches, field trips to historic sites. Is there anything like that in the Barrett Chambers?
3: Well, I'm only on my third batch of clerks, so it might be early to call anything a tradition, but I can tell you some of the things that we've enjoyed doing. So I'm from New Orleans, even though I've been living in Indiana for uh, 15 or 16 years now. So uh, when I was, and I got this idea from Justice Scalia, during the Scalia clerkship, he would always have us over to his home um, for dinner once during the clerkship year. And we all really enjoyed that, and we look forward to getting to know him in a different setting. And so that is something that I have done and will continue to do with my clerks, and I clerk them a New Orleans meal. (laughs) So depending on what seafood Jesse and I have been able to bring back from New Orleans and dietary restrictions of the clerks and their partners you know, my staples are gumbo and red beans and rice and jambalaya and bread pudding souffle, one of our <laughs> favorites. Mm. Um, so we do that. And then we've done some activities this year. We had a new one. Um, we went and shot sporting clays at a range that was up in Michigan. And that was so fun. We really enjoyed that. And so we're going to go again when the weather warms up. It's not really sporting clays weather right now <laughs> in, in South Bend or Michigan. So we're going to do that again in the spring or summer when it warms up. And I would say other than that, you know, in my chambers, I am located in a bankruptcy court because that's where they had space for me. And while court of appeals judges don't need their own courtrooms, bankruptcy judges do – so I have a courtroom in my chambers, and that is a place where, you know, we eat lunch there regularly. I try to eat with the clerks um, at least once a week, um, and, and they eat in there most days, except when they go out on Taco Tuesdays to the Mexican <laughs> uh, the Mexican grocery store and restaurant that's uh, nearby Chambers. So I think just spending time with clerks in chambers, trying to have lunch with them, and, and, you know, some of our outings like this.
2: So you mentioned you're a runner.
3: Do clerks ever run with you? They do not. So <laughs> I, I am not as brave as Judge Hardiman to do marathon training <laughs> with my law clerks. So no, they don't. Do you have anything in your chambers that reflects your personality or where you're from? Well, let's see. So I, I mentioned that in the courtroom, we have a lot of space. And one of the things that we have been able to put in there because we have so much space is a foosball table that's on loan for my children for <laughs> chambers. Um, this batch of clerks has not played it uh, too much last group of clerks enjoyed it more. Um, And then in chambers, Notre Dame fans will be familiar with the blue and gold sign that says play like a champion today. It hangs in the staircase that the football players run through when they go up onto the field and they all tap it as they go by. And my friend Judge Willett on the Fifth Circuit sent me a gold and blue sign that says judge like a champion today. (laughs) (laughs) And so I have that hanging up in chambers and it's a, a splash of Judge Willett, fun and humor in a setting that's otherwise pretty formal. And I, I will say about the the courtroom, my children love to come not just to visit their foosball table, but you know they love climbing up on the bench and. They, you know, their father was a prosecutor for many years. They like to write out indictments for one another. So I will sometimes find legal pads with, the, you know, the indictments for crimes that they've made up that the others have committed on the bench. So that's been an amusing part of Chambers. That's great. Um, so one final question. If you could
4: have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
3: It is hard to narrow down because there are obviously so many men and women who have served on the court who would be interesting to talk to. But I recently read Evan Thomas's excellent biography of Justice Mm O'Connor. So I will say Justice O'Connor. And I have met Justice O'Connor before, but, you know, not in this kind of setting that you're envisioning where you get to sit down and and really talk to her. And, you know, who wouldn't and certainly what woman wouldn't want to hear her talk about the stories of breaking in, not just. To the among the brethren, right, on the mm-hmm. Supreme Court, but also into the legal profession. I thought, you know, the, the Thomas biography did such a nice job um, of talking about her personal life and experiences. Some judicial biographies are very heavy on describing the opinions and reading more about her experience and her life um, just made me eager to get to know her better and it also gave me a sense of gratitude because my experience professionally has been so different than hers. You know, remember she could only get hired as a secretary even mm-hmm. after graduating at the top of her class. And, you know, I'm the first woman from Indiana to sit on the Seventh Circuit in one of the Indiana seats. And that's really hardly worth notice because <laughs> nobody really thinks it's odd to have a woman on the court. People don't bat an eye when it's, you know, three women um, from the Seventh Circuit who are on a panel. And, you know, that's because of women like Justice O'Connor. But I have to add, so I know that it is against your rules to say John Marshall. (laughs) But in the spirit of current events, I recently learned, so I knew that he was the chief during the impeachment of Justice Chase. But I did not know until recently that he actually testified in the Senate during the impeachment trial because Mm -hmm. he had overheard a conversation between Justice Chase and Justice Bushrod Washington that was relevant. So he had to send a deposition to the House during the investigation. And he testified in the trial. And then remember, on the circuit, he also presided over the trial for treason of Aaron Burr. Mm -hmm. So thinking about how he established an independent judiciary when he navigated through those kinds of stressful and, and fraught partisan times, that would be something worth hearing about. In addition, obviously, to all the other interesting things you could talk to John Marshall about,
2: yeah, that's fascinating. I had not heard that about uh, Chief Justice Marshall, so we'll we'll allow that answer to uh, stand. Thank you. <laughs> well, Judge Barrett, thank you so much for
1: joining us.
3: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: John Carlo, I just I just love her so much. Okay, all right. That that's that's enough of that. It's uh, time <laughs> for that part of the show where I try to stump John Carlo with trivia. Bring it. Today's th- Today's theme is, fittingly, Oaths and Confirmation Ceremonies. All right, give me your best shot. All right, well, I've got four shots for you, so let's see how you do. Question number one. Who was the first justice to take both oaths and be fully vested as a member of the Supreme Court?
0: So I, I know this, actually. That would be James Wilson, the very first Supreme Court
1: justice. That is correct. It is James Wilson. He took both of his oaths on October 5th, 1789. There was initially some confusion from the first justices about who should administer these first oaths, uh, but eventually it seemed like they all settled on various government officials. Wilson's oaths were administered to him by Philadelphia Mayor Samuel Powell. All right, you're one for one. Moving on. Four decades... John Marshall's Chief Justice mahogany chair has been used as part of the investiture ceremony for new justices who take their seat before administration of the judicial oath. Who was the first justice to be sworn in on John Marshall's mahogany chair?
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, so John Marshall served as Chief Justice till 1835. So that's Narrows it down to 185 years of history. I can work with that.
1: Okay. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Somebody in the last 185 years, huh? I will repeat the beginning of my question, which is: For decades, John Marshall's Chief Justice chair has been used in this way. Well,
0: 185 years is 18 and a half decades, so (laughs) that's something.
1: All right. So I the second half.
0: You know, Amy, I I don't know.
1: So the answer is Lewis Powell in 1972. He was the first to use that chair in his investiture ceremony. And that tradition has apparently been followed by all subsequent incoming justices and presumably by Justice Barrett earlier this week. All right. One for two so far. Question number three. Which justice became the first to take the two different oaths from two different chief justices. Oh, I know this too. Uh, So this was
0: Justice Scalia because he was appointed uh, after Chief Justice Berger announced his retirement, but he wasn't filling Berger's seat because Rehnquist, then an associate justice, was going to be elevated. So Berger administered the first oath, and then when he was replaced... By Rehnquist. Rehnquist administered the second.
1: That is correct. It was Antonin Scalia and uh, Chief Justice Berger, who was still retiring, but still the chief, administered the constitutional oath earlier in the day to Rehnquist and Scalia. And then as John Carlo also got correct later that day, he administered the judicial oath to Rehnquist, officially turning over the reins as chief to him. And then newly minted Chief Justice Rehnquist, in turn, turned around and administered the judicial oath to Scalia. All right. Doing well so far. Two, four, three. Are you ready for your final question? Yes. If you recall from earlier in the show, we mentioned that Justice Anthony Kennedy administered the constitutional oath to incoming Justice Neil Gorsuch. What was the significance of Kennedy's administration of this oath to Gorsuch? Oh, Amy,
0: I thought you would I thought you'd save the hard ones for last. Ow. Gorsuch <laughs> Justice Gorsuch clerked for Justice Kennedy.
1: That is correct. Gorsuch was a former Kennedy clerk and this was the first time a Supreme Court justice was not only sworn in by the justice for whom he had formerly clerked, but also the first time that a, a former clerk served alongside another justice for whom he had previously clerked.
0: That must have he been really well. interesting for Gorsuch,
1: right? That brief yeah. C- could you imagine now? Now he has his own clerks while he's working with the guy that he clerked for. Yeah. Um, anyway, folks, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you figure out to listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us that five-star rating.
0: You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows.
3: case is submitted.
1: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.